0: If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter three. My name's Pastor Randy, been on vacation for a little while. So you recognize me. But Mark, Mark's been on vacation all summer. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, we're in an extended series on the Gospel of Mark, though we broke it off. Um, at the end of the spring, and spent the summer in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and then for a very brief time in uh, Psalm 8. Uh, But now we come back, and we will be taking up Mark's gospel again throughout uh, the school year, uh, beginning in chapter 3, and the first six verses. Um, the flowers, on uh, this flower and the uh, flower over there, uh, uh, is in uh, memory of Debbie Talbert, whose uh, memorial service was here yesterday. Um, Debbie became a part of this church when she was 30 years old. And she served in various capacities until she resigned uh, from nursery duty. I think she was still 86, but she might have already turned 87. But I think she was 86. Um, so that's a pretty good run of uh, service in, in one church, 57 years and very active Uh, really hands-on weekly service uh, for 56 of those years so remember the Talbert family as they uh, mourn the loss and really a number of you very very good friends uh, with Debbie for many many years um This Thursday morning, our our regular men's group for the school year will also restart Calvin's Institutes. Uh, There's a fair group of you. We're in the the middle of it, but if you would like to join such a group, just come out 6.15 Thursday mornings and uh, read one of the most significant theological books ever written in the history of the church without question that's what it, that's what it is now those some of these guys would admit to you it's not the easiest reading uh not the easiest reading but it's not the hardest either but in any case uh those of you who are already involved welcome you back this thursday six fifteen. and if you haven't been and you'd like to be uh there you can get this book from any number of outlets and uh and join us on Thursday mornings. Let's uh, stand together as we will read Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we say with the psalmist that we would bless you with our soul. You who are our Lord and our God. You who are exceedingly great. Splendor and majesty clothed you. Light surrounds you like a garment. You are the one who stretched out the universe in its unfathomably large and glorious, its inconceivably grand nature. And yet you are the one who created it. You are the one who causes the rain to fall and the streams to run. You are the one who causes the winds to blow. You are the one, as the psalmist says, who walks on the wings of the wind. And Father, as we move through our lives, may we come to know you and be transformed by so knowing. To know you so as to, just as we sang this morning, to know you in such a way as to no longer be a slave to fear. For we understand our connection with you to be a connection of those who are your children. And we can know that if we possess faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, and as we'll talk about this morning at the table, belong to you through faith in the shed blood of Christ and his broken body, as those who are a part of your new covenant. We no longer need to be slaves to fear. Even if we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, you assure us to fear no evil. For you are with us, and that your rod and your staff, it comforts us, and you lay out a table before us in the presence of our enemies, and our cup runs over. And it's a certain thing that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And we will dwell in your house forever. So no wonder we have no reason to be afraid. Whether we are healthy or afflicted with cancer in the late stages. And we have people who are both. We are no longer slaves to fear. For we are the children of God, your children. We ask you now to come and meet us in the Word and in the table this morning, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, as Pastor Don reminds us every week, you know we are becoming disciples, we are a family of disciples. But that first one, uh, we are becoming disciples. I want to remind you of uh, of a comment that i I quoted uh, from a commentary on Mark's Gospel by Rodney Decker when we started it, and a couple times since, because it is such a great summary. Of what you and I are to remind ourselves we're looking for and why in every single paragraph of Mark's gospel. So here's what Rodney Decker wrote Mark's purpose is related to discipleship, he works it out paragraph by paragraph by challenging his, readers, challenging his readers to answer two intertwined questions. Number one, who is Jesus? And secondly, what does he expect from those who follow him? Mark's answers are not stated in a formal way or in an argued thesis. Rather, They are demonstrated in narrative form. The included stories have been selected and arranged to prompt both questions in a reader's mind and to marshal the evidence that leads to the intended answer. Jesus is a powerful Savior who is worth obeying. So the answer to both of those pieces is fleshed out a lot more by Mark, little piece by piece, story by story, as we'll see in our text for this morning, where both of those questions are again answered really clearly in a single little uh, paragraph. That's what's going on as we read when Mark entered when, and, and he entered, that is, the, Jesus entered the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. Um, so who is this Jesus that enters the synagogue and what does he expect? Those are the questions, the two questions that we'll answer by posing four questions to the text uh, this morning. Now I'm going to state our thesis for this morning in two different ways. The first one is the more accurate because we're going to broaden the application more than the immediate application in the story. But the second one would be um, narrower statement of it. But here's the broader statement. Uh, we are to declare Jesus as Lord and live our lives in accordance with his word, or with his lordship. Now the paragraph has that in this narrower form, we are to declare Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath and live our lives on the Sabbath in accordance with Jesus' understanding of the Sabbath. That's what's going on in the narrower sense very clearly in verses 1 to 6 of Mark 3. But our opening question is is this. So who is Lord of the moral high ground? Who is Lord of the moral high ground? That's central in this little story. Notice again how it begins. And again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Um, The Pharisees sort of see themselves as the lords of the moral high ground. Certainly their tradition is the lord of the moral high ground. And if Jesus differs from that position, then he should experience the wrath of the moral high ground in their opinion. Now of course Mark writes with a different set of presuppositions. Mark writes this story because Mark assumes that he knows Jesus is actually the Lord of the moral high ground. And to the extent that the Pharisees take issue with him by definition they are now in opposition to the Lord of the moral high ground. That's what's going on here. Now in Pharisaic tradition what they're watching him about is a really straightforward case because the Pharisees were willing to admit this, okay, if there is a life and death health crisis, in that case, anyone could take any action necessary to save that life, even on the Sabbath. However, if the problem at hand is not life and death, then the thing that you ought to do is wait till the next day and then take whatever means necessary to either save the life or to correct the problem or whatever it is. And so you can see this is a really straightforward case for them. Cut and dry. This guy has a withered hand. That is not a life-threatening Affliction. So he should wait till the next day. And so they're watching Jesus. What's he going to do with a case that should clearly wait till the next day? That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. Um, Now, you and I, as professing Christians, Our assumption, every day, all the time, is to be this. Jesus is Lord of the moral high ground, no matter what the issue is. If you know what Jesus thinks, if you know where Jesus stands on an issue, you know where the right position is. You know where the truth is. You know where... The moral high ground is—they um, don't accept that, and most people in our culture don't accept that either, right? So let me just give Don announced, you know, that there's be a, um, a prayer hour this afternoon along Forty First Street related to. Uh, the abortion question people standing on 41st street and praying and what are they praying for uh and our nation and our nation's views on something like um abortion and the tradition of american secularism increasingly uh there's really nothing more wonderful than abortion it's uh celebrated um wildly uh by one of our political Parties are celebrated wildly by um, basically 90-some percent of our uh, media outlets. It's celebrated wildly by those who put together about 98% of our entertainment programming. So that's where we live. That's where we live. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, weighing in on, on the question so that it doesn't come up, um, was a, a CNN commentator in the, mor- in the morning who said, look, look, Jesus never said anything about abortion. So there's no Jesus-related question in the whole abortion issue. He never said anything on abortion. Check the concordance in the New Testament Look for the word abortion. Not going to find it. Jesus said nothing about abortion. Which most people, oh, yeah, I didn't think he did. Wow, that's pretty good. That's good to know. That solves that solves that. Well, wow. but Jesus did say stuff like this. Now listen to this very carefully. I'm going to make a connection. You made it before, but be sure you see it the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. which is a, That's kind of a merism for the Old Testament. I haven't come to abolish anything in the Old Testament. Um, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, do you hear what Jesus is saying? I don't disagree with anything in the Old Testament. Nothing. I disagree with nothing. As to the Old Testament, my position is nothing in the Old Testament can be safely ignored. Nothing. Not a jot. Not a tittle, not a little piece of a Hebrew letter. Nothing. That's Jesus' position on everything in the Old Testament. Now we've said many times, without almost without question, Jesus would have had the Psalms memorized. He's got the Psalms memorized. Um, And he believes everything that the Psalms tell you to believe. Uh, Those are his positions. Uh, So Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret parts intricately woven in the depths of the earth, his mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, The days that you formed for me. So, for Jesus, who's in the womb? Who's in the womb? Well, somebody that God has formed. Who's in the womb? The kind of person that's eventually born and lives an entire life, and by the way, while they're still in the womb, the extent of their life is already known. It's already certain as if it's written down. Now, of course, for 60 or 70 million, the the number of days that the Lord knew about when they were in the womb was zero because they would never live to be born. But that's the kind of person who's in the womb, according to Jesus. That's that's who's in the womb. Now, that is not the official position of our culture. That's not the... The NFL doesn't like that. Major League Baseball doesn't like that. The NBA doesn't like that. See it, ESPN doesn't like that. CNN doesn't like that. Uh, it was Joe Scarborough who said, "No, no. There's no absolutely no reference to uh, Jesus didn't have never said anything about abortion. I should know. I'm a Roman Catholic. That was that was his position. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you see." That Jesus says, this is who's in the womb. Well, that's an issue for the Christian. That's an issue. Uh, That's the position of the moral high ground as to who's in the womb, as to who gets healed on the Sabbath. That's Jesus' position. That's his understanding. Psalm 139. Secondly... Why does Jesus ask the question that he asks? Why does Jesus ask the question that he asks? Because that's all he does with them is just pose a question to them. Uh, He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, here's the question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now if you know anything about polling or anything about debate or anything like that, it it makes a great deal of difference who gets to form the question and phrase the question. You, You can ask questions that are designed to lead you away from the center of an issue and you can ask questions that are designed to lead you to the center of an issue there are those two kinds of questions, and we use them regularly uh, for our own purposes. And Jesus is, frankly, he, he's doing that here. But it's hard to object to a question that's actually designed to lead you to the center of the issue. Because he and the Pharisees, uh, they have this absolutely in common. What's God like? God is perfectly righteous. God is the ultimate standard of all things. They agree on that, Jesus and the Pharisees. Is God the ultimate standard as to the Sabbath? Yes, God is the ultimate standard as to the Sabbath. Okay, Jesus says, let me ask you a question. What do you think he designed the Sabbath day for? To heal or to harm? To kill or to make alive? What do you think? Jesus lets them know, I'm leaning, healing life. What do you guys think? Now it's interesting what they don't say. What is not recorded? I don't, well, we know from what the text says, they didn't say anything. But they don't even try to say that's a trick question, because then he can just what's tricky about it? I'm asking you, what do you think? God's design for the Sabbath was ultimately healing or harm, life or death. Whoa, that—that's a clarifying question. Just one more touch on this abortion question in America. You'll never hear a celebrity. You'll never hear a politician. You'll never never hear anybody ask this kind of question because it's too clarifying. Were you once in a womb yourself? Were you once in a womb yourself? Or a related question. Is there a direct connection to who you are now and who you once were in somebody's womb? Is there a direct connection between those two entities? Nobody asks that question because the answer is far too obvious. And the question is far too clarifying to deal with. So we avoid it. Don't answer. Ask it. That is the kind of question that, that Jesus Asked. So um, we, as I, as I already mentioned, we had a memorial service yesterday for Debbie Talbert. And uh, and Debbie was once in the womb of Margaret Lundberg, and she uh, was given birth in a place called Arpen, Wisconsin, nineteen. 19- thirty five. And of course, according to Psalm one thirty nine, while she was in the womb of Margaret Lundberg, God knew that Debbie would raise six children in a farmhouse in southwest Minnesota. And that she would see many grandchildren and great grandchildren. And that she would live until the age 87 and pass away. It's all new. He knew all of that. That's all like, as if written down, Psalmist says. She's in the womb. She's in the womb. So if you just ask the question, were you once in a womb? Is there a direct connection between who you are now and who you were then? And so if you're killing whatever in the womb, what does it appear to be that you would be killing? That's a clarifying question. That's a clarifying question, uh, which helps you figure out where the moral high ground is. Kind of question that Jesus would ask. Thirdly, what's the significance of the silence of Jesus' opponents? It says at the end of verse four, they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. But They were silent. Why are they silent? Because they got nothing helpful to say at the moment for their position, given how he has posed the question. Wow, that's an unfair question. What's unfair about it? In fact, it's clearly not an unfair question. It's a clarifying question. Since they don't know what to say, they say nothing. They say nothing. Um, Which, of course, happens all over the place in all kinds of moral and spiritual questions, but they simply go silent. They don't accuse them of asking a trick question but neither are they humbled by his question and say, Well, I guess we never thought about it that way. So you might be right. No, 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 no. They're not even close to that. They don't, they don't, they don't brush up against that. There's no indication in the text that, that that even seriously occurs to them for reasons that um, we are just about to touch on. But Jesus, when they, when they fall silent, he's ticked off at them, but also grieved. And he's ticked off and grieved because of the hardness of their heart. Now, the Apostle Paul, in a, to a, that little phrase, hardness of their heart, actually doesn't take place a bunch of times in the New Testament. Not very many times at all. Uh, one of them, the most helpful to clarify what's going on, is Paul's use of the phrase in Ephesians four eighteen. So, if you have your Bible, look at me because this this verse is really worth looking at and thinking about and and taking apart in your mind to think about where we live and the difficulties of living where we live and unpacking issues uh, in our in our day and why it's such of a tricky difficult thing to do and why most people don't survive cultures uh, uh, like ours so here's here's what it says in Ephesians um, 418. And they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, through the hardness of their hearts. Now I I, I, I retranslated the preposition there as through because the ESV uses two different uh, English words uh, to translate the same preposition. And I just want to see this is a parallel uh, that Paul is using the same preposition. So the ESV has it this way. Um, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because or through the ignorance that is in them and then due to their hardness of heart through their hardness of heart. They're both sort of instrumental. But but I want you to notice to start with, so this this thing in the middle, the question is, where does the ignorance of the Pharisees come from? Where does moral ignorance come from? How do people end up morally, spiritually ignorant, according to the Apostle Paul? And here's his answer. It's sandwiched between two things. Notice how verse 18 begins. They are, and this is what grammatically is a perfect passive participle. They are having been darkened. They are in a state of having been darkened in their understanding. How does that happen? They have been darkened in their understanding. What's the moral, what's the moral outlook of, uh, of Hollywood? Fairly biblical or not so much? How many of you you think that you have spent less than 2,000 hours being discipled by the moral outlook of Hollywood? How many of you think you've spent less than 10,000 hours being discipled by the moral outlook of Hollywood? Um, I doubt we would have anybody even close to either of those categories. Like the Gospel of Mark, what Hollywood does really well is tell stories, moral stories, one after the next, 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 next, of a certain perspective, a certain dark perspective. And if you don't have anything to compare it to, then you are simply a goner. Absolutely a goner. You don't even know what hit you. You don't know what's happening to you. You simply feel morally cutting edge and enlightened by agreeing with whatever they say. That's most people. And that was true in the pagan world as well. The mainstream of the culture always has that effect. And Paul says, You were having been darkened your hearts having been darkened in your understanding. And that puts you in that moral ignorance through hardness of heart, which is the product of all that darkening. Hardness of heart. So all kinds of you, You, you cannot share with them any criticism of the modern moral moment. <laughs> Get out of here. Stop that. Why? Darkened, hardened. Ignorance. Same things happen to the disciples. I mean, the, the Pharisees in there, they have their tradition. They've studied that tradition. They've studied the tradition far more diligently than they ever studied the Old Testament itself, which is true of Judaism till this day. You study the rabbis. You study the Targum. You study you study the tradition. You don't study the text itself. You study the tradition. That's what they, so they knew exactly what the tradition said, and what was the whole goal? Be in line with the tradition. So they're not ready for Jesus, who goes right to the right to the text, right to the central ideas of the Old Testament, and says, "I just don't think that God set aside the." the Sabbath day for harm and death. I think far more likely healing and life. What do you guys think? Well, we're not saying. We're not saying. Hardness of heart. So, it's a pretty grim picture. So, we'll close off with this as we then head to the table with it. So how does verse 6 help us follow Jesus in troubled times For we live in morally and spiritually troubled times? How does verse 6 help us? Well, um, really pretty straightforwardly, though not in what doesn't seem on the surface a very encouraging way. The Pharisees departed immediately with the Herodians Now, this is where a little knowledge of the first century comes in mighty handy. Because you would know, hey, wow, what are these people doing together? They can't stand each other. They can't stand each other. What are they doing counseling together? See, the Pharisees, very, very, very conservative group to the traditions of Israel as opposed to the Roman Empire. (laughs) Herodians, <laughs> wake up, boys! We're living in the Roman Empire. You got to go along to get along. Um, uh, Herod, uh, I think Herod knows how to get along with the Roman Empire and hang on to some of his Jewishness. I think I think he's setting us a pretty good example. Uh, in fact, if you watch us, you'll you'll see. We're getting quite a bit of. uh, We're getting good positions. We're getting good jobs within the Roman Empire, even as Jewish people, by having learned from Herod. Well, the Pharisees despise that, and the Herodians think the Pharisees are conservative hypocrites. But here they are; they're together. Why? Because as much as they hate each other, they hate Jesus worse. And so their common cause is against Jesus. So what's helpful about that? Well, what's helpful about that is if you think that you're going to learn to walk with Jesus in such a way that the culture will still love you. You're just kidding yourself. Jesus couldn't Jesus didn't pull that off. He didn't pull that off. He's not going to pull that off. And if you try to pull it off, you'd just be terribly frustrated and, and, and really prone to compromise to get that done. And this, Mark shows you, now: Jesus, who owns the moral high ground, they hated him. They absolutely hated him. And he told you, Remember what Jesus said to us in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Rather think, oh, no, 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 no. Um, people, the world only hates distortions of Jesus, the hypocrisies of Jesus. People, yes, that's what they say. That's not true. They hate Jesus. The purer the representation of him, the worse the worse. The more you reflect him, the more clearly you reflect him, in many, many circles, the worse. It's good to know. Important to know. And then you just stick with him. You stick with him. The table of the Lord, as Paul outlined it in 1 Corinthians 11, works this way. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then he goes on and says, But let be sure you examine yourself first to see whether, What are you examining yourself for? Well, you're examining yourself whether you're in the new covenant, this is the new covenant in my blood. Are you a new covenant person? That is, do you recognize the lordship of Jesus? Does, is Jesus the moral high ground for you, or do you find yourself saying, "Well, not well. I want His cro- I want forgiveness, but I really need some distance from Jesus' moral positions on a whole range of questions." I, then he is not the Lord for you. He's, just, he's not the Lord for you. And the table is, is, not, is not for you. See, who is Jesus? And is who Jesus is, does that shape your life? In meaningful ways. Not perfect ways. Not perfect ways. If you're you're a believer, you are often disappointed in yourself, very disappointed in yourself, regularly disappointed in yourself, not perfect ways. But you also ought to have some sense that following Jesus does shape and direct the course of your life, and that you want it to do so more and that your great disappointment is that you're not further along than you are, the table's for you. Struggling along, following after Jesus, table's for you. That's the men who come to serve the communion this morning to come as I remind you again of Paul's words to the Corinthians. Jesus in handling the bread, says, "This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We ask the Lord's blessing upon His broken body. Father in heaven, we thank you this day that you did not spare your own Son, but delivered him us up for us all. To go to the cross, to be killed, metaphorically to have his body broken for us, in our place, as our substitute, that we might belong to you, find forgiveness in you, function as your children. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his body broken for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.